0: On last week's program, we aired part one of our chat with UC Davis professor of ophthalmology, Dr. Ivan Schwab, about his fascinating book, Evolution's Witness. Dr. Schwab has cataloged the eye as it is found in numerous forms in nature, so let us take up where we left off. Well, talking of uh, reptiles, I want to talk about the tuatara. It's this pre-dinosaur reptile that's found only in New Zealand. It's got a third eye, and plus I just like to say tuatara. <laughs> tuatara, it is,
1: it is an interesting word, isn't it? Um, This is an ancient animal. It hasn't changed much to over hundreds of millions of years. It was around before the dinosaurs and is around after them. It survives only on a few islands around New Zealand. Uh, The other islands, unfortunately, have lost it probably because of uh, the introduction of mammals or just habitat loss in general. The animal is rather slow-moving uh, and it's not the same reptile that you see uh, perhaps at zoos or even running around your backyard. It's not as fast and not as well equipped with survival tactics. Uh, the tuatar, though, illustrates to us what the basal state of the reptilian lines were at the time.
0: Teaching us about dinosaurs, perhaps.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. This gives us some hints of what the dinosaurs were like. Animals, when they evolved to a certain point, most of them, including us, evolve as time moves forward. But we know from the fossil record that the tuatara, also called sphenodon, has not evolved much. So it tends to stay static. Not all animals evolved, although most do. So this gives us a window as to what the reptilian lines were like at the time. Now, some classify this one as a reptile, much like you classify a lizard. But others say this is in its own lineage. In other words, it's separate from the reptiles you see in your yard, like a lizard, or certainly separate from the snakes. Um, but others combine it. doesn't matter where we place it. It's just that we know it's very basal. That means it's been around a long time and hasn't changed much. And yes, it has a third eye. Not only does it have a third eye, but it has a third cornea. You can't see much with that eye unless you have a clear window above it, and technically that would be a cornea. But this is a most peculiar eye. Some of the components of the eye are reversed. The retinal cells, for example, are upside down. Uh, They have pigment cells in front of them, and we don't understand why. But the animal can't see with this eye, and I put that in quotes, animal can't see like we can see with our lateral eyes it uses this eye to tell light from dark, really circadian rhythm, that rhythm that allows us to meet our daily requirements and get up at the right time and go to bed at the right time, except when we, when we make a mess of it with jet lag.
0: Well, Dr. Robb, is there something else that eyes can do besides focus uh, as we think of as traditionally for vision? Uh, does it, does the eye do something else?
1: Doug, good question. Uh, eyes can do other things But in particular, if you loosen the definition a little bit, photoreception can do different things than just be used for sight. There are lots of examples of of this across the animal kingdom, but one of the most interesting and best ones is a story I'm going to tell you, and you're going to tell it tonight to others, (laughs) because it is just plain fascinating, and here goes. Male butterflies have photoreceptors in their genitalia, Why would that be? Because if the light goes off, they know that they're properly positioned. That way they can pass on their genes. Because if the light remains on, they're not properly positioned. And this is important to them. They have no other way of knowing. So they have photoreceptors in places you wouldn't imagine photoreceptors are needed.
0: People working with stem cells take note. (laughs) Maybe some potential here for some hybridization.
1: (laughs) I suppose that's probably not where you're going to send stem cells for the next uh, invention, but it is interesting. There are other interesting places that uh, photoreceptors arise that might also interest you, and I'll give you one more. Sea snakes in the South Pacific, they mate in the South Pacific, they swim, they uh, eat, they hide from predators, but the sea snakes are also victims of being prey because eagles like to eat them sharks like to eat them. And even though they're poisonous, the eagles and the sharks are not harmed by their poison. So they have photoreceptors in their tail. So they will swim away from a predator as they're being attacked and hide, perhaps in a a cave in in between rocks. When the light in their tail goes off, that is when the photoreceptors no longer see light, they know they're safe. But if the tail is still exposed to light, then they're at risk to being captured by the shark or by the eagle. So extraocular photoreception is used by many animals for many purposes. It's not just used for uh, vision. And in fact, that is the title. Evolution's witness is really photoreception because it's so common, it's so important. It's the sensory element really that drives life.
0: One creature I have to ask you about uh, that I remember reading about in high school biology, the euglena. It's a little one-celled beast. You'd think of it as a plant because it has a chloroplast that makes, uses chlorophyll to make sugar and make food. But I guess when there's we're not enough sunlight to do that, it'll, it'll eat something else. So it's, kind of a, it's not really a plant. It's not really an animal.
1: Good point it's sort of like a Sertz mint. It's a candy mint (laughs) and it's a breath mint. It does have an eye spot. It can see. Uh, It also has a chloroplast. It can attack as a predator or it can use sunlight and do photosynthesis. So yes, it's a, a combination. It's not the only such creature. It used to be called phytoplankton, meaning that it was a plant but now we know that it's sort of a hybrid, and it represents basal species that still exist, and probably species like this existed in that prebiotic soup I mentioned earlier. These early animals do not necessarily have to change. If they fit their environment well, and they're successful, why change? So even though other animals may have radiated on into multicellular organism, this particular creature's perfectly happy to remain single-cell
0: because it's successful. But you're quite right, it's a hybrid. I I was very impressed by your description of the eyes of some spiders that hunt prey. They may have eight eyes uh, that differ from insect compound eyes. Each may work differently. Each pair may work differently. Some are using polarized light, you say. Some are more like little telescopes. Can you talk a bit about that very odd arrangement?
1: Spiders do have uh, an odd and unusual set of eyes. The most interesting one and the best acuity come in the jumping spiders. You've seen jumping spiders. They're in your backyard. And for those of you who don't love spiders, these will change your mind. They're positively charming. (laughs) First of all, they won't bite you. They won't hurt. And when you see them, they'll look at you quizzically, almost like a... A questioning child, because they have big eyes.
0: They do look like a face on the front.
1: They do look like they have a face. And if you move around, if you watch them and move around, they'll jump back and forth so that they have a good view of you. (laughs) What are they doing? Well, they can't move their eyes externally. So they move their eyes internally. But they still can't see you if you move well. So that's the reason they'll jump to face you. Now, inside their eyes is most unusual, and really a lesson to us. They have a large lens. That's what makes their eye look big, and that's what you're looking at is the the large lens. And then they have a long tube behind it, and the tube comes to a small point. The point's called a fovea. Again, I don't want to get wrapped up in words, and it's not important what it's called, but because there's a point... It allows light to come in and be concentrated by the lens, and actually this point then magnifies the light rays so that more of the photoreceptors can have access to it, so it magnifies the image. It, in effect, is a telescope, but it gets even more interesting. This animal has accomplished something that, I'm surprised, hasn't been used in computer technology, and maybe it is, maybe it's not something something I'm not aware of, Uh, but they've essentially stacked their photoreceptors. Here's what I mean. The photoreceptors, those cells that receive light and send the signal to your brain, are lined up side by side. Perhaps there's a blue one beside a red one beside a green one, all arrayed in a linear fashion. It's in a cup, to be sure, but they're not stacked on top of each other. Think of um, stacking boxes on top of each other. That's what the, the jumping spider does. The jumping spider has the shortest wavelength photoreceptor at the beginning, the next longer wavelength photoreceptor on the next box down, and so on for four steps. So that as light comes through, if it's short wavelength, it's taken by the first photoreceptor. If it's a little longer, it's taken by the second or third or fourth which means it has concentrated its ability to accept light rays vertically instead of horizontally. Now, if you did this with, let's say, your camera, instead of having the image captured horizontally on a flat surface, you could have it captured vertically, and you could then double or triple the number of cells within that that card. That's why I'm surprised it hasn't been taken up by computer technology. But never mind that. The spider's done this.
0: Nanotechnologists take note.
1: That's good. Well, they probably already know about it. (laughs) Uh, But that's right. Nanotechnologists take note. New information has just come out recently, within the last few months, in fact, but since the book has been published, telling us that it even goes a step further than that, that these spiders use where the light is focused to tell them exactly how far away the prey is, a little like those multiple pupils. By doing this, it knows the distance from its eye to its prey. It's a simple matter to learn how far it has to leap to capture its prey by knowing which photoreceptor the image is focused on. Pretty impressive for a little guy that has a brain no bigger than a pinhead.
0: (laughs) We're speaking with Dr. Ivan Schwab about his book, Evolution's Witness, How Eyes Evolved. We'd be remiss, I think, uh, if we did not uh, address, among other animal oddities, we're talking about the woodpecker. I know you wrote a scientific paper on the woodpecker. Uh, I know this because I spoke to you uh, over at Capital Public Radio on Insight about that in the wake of your getting a whimsical, ignoble award. Uh, it's probably worth recapping some of the odd features that keep woodpeckers from uh, not only smashing their brains to pulp, but keeping from popping their eyes out.
1: If you think about what a woodpecker has to do, it's not only astonishing you might say it's dumbfounding. How is it that some of the larger woodpeckers, such as a pileated woodpecker, how is it that he can hammer, pound against a tree up to 12,000 times a day, striking a tree with the force of about 12 to 15 miles an hour, that is to a dead stop. It's a little like you running into a wall with your face 12,000 times a day. How do you avoid injuring your eyes? How do you avoid injuring your brain? Forget your nose for the moment. How do you avoid (laughs) injuring the rest of your head? Well, the woodpecker has evolved a number of interesting mechanisms. Let me tell you about the most interesting mechanism and probably the most important. The woodpecker has a dense lower mandible, lower jaw really, and that dense lower jaw takes most of the force. You can prove this by doing a CAT scan, the same CAT scan that we do on humans if we're going to investigate the brain. Do a CAT scan and digitally subtract the bone to see which bone is densest. And far and away, that lower mandible, that lower jaw, is so dense, and the upper one is really quite light and cushioned. So the force goes in the lower jaw and goes down the shoulders through a heavy muscular band, really. So the brain and the eyes sit on top of it. But we're not here to talk about the lower jaw. We're talking about the eyes. So how do the eyes contribute? Well, very importantly, even though this sits on top of the hammer, if you will, uh, it still is going to get jostled and it's still going to have deacceleration forces. Well, what happens here is that the Bird has a third eyelid called the nictitans, and that nictitans is quite thick. And the millisecond before strike, that nictitans comes across the eye and holds it back like a lap and a shoulder belt would in your car, so that it, the eye doesn't come forward. It also protects against those tiny wood chips and splinters that will come off as the mandible, the bill, strikes the tree. Also, there is a bone that circles the head that begins on the upper jaw, the, the maxilla, and circles around the head to insert into the base of the tongue and that clamps down on the head. Furthermore, within the eye, the eye fills with blood. There's a, an organ in the eye called the pectin. It's a plexus of blood vessels, a group of blood vessels that u- is used to nourish the inner eye, but it can also fill with blood. And before strike, it fills with blood and makes the eye quite hard. Uh, It holds back the retina, in essence, by making everything quite firm. The separation between the eye and the brain is very thin. It's called a septum. It doesn't matter about the name. It's a bony, thin separation between the eyes and the brain. And the eyes are bigger than the brain, in fact. So at the moment of strike... You have a seat belt that holds the eye in place, Hmm. the eye that is quite firm that holds the brain in place, and the brain has very little in the way of fluid surrounding it so that the brain doesn't jostle about with the strike. So really it becomes a firm cap on top of a hammer as it strikes a tree 12,000 times a day.
0: It's impressive. It's very impressive. I want to I, I want to uh, back out of some specifics and talk about some some general questions. Starting with among the many eye improvisations that you you talk about in the book, um, c- can you cite a few design features that that you find especially ingenious?
1: Uh, let me tell you about a couple that are particularly ingenious. One is in a copepod. I'll explain that in a minute. It's called Pontella. A copepod is a is a small animal that uh, we would be hard-pressed to see unless you used a net called a plankton net to catch very small animals. But once you have it, it looks like a shrimp. It looks like a tiny shrimp, less than an inch, perhaps a half an inch or less long, tiny. Doesn't mean that it doesn't have eyes, however. It has three eyes. Two eyes on its head where you'd classically think of eyes, very much looking like a a tiny shrimp with two little eyes. But the males have a third eye. To help you understand where it is, if you were looking at it and considered a face, those two eyes would be on, on the top of its back where you'd expect its eyes to be for a shrimp. But where you'd expect its nose to be would be this third eye. This third eye is most ingenious. The third eye is called a nocular eye, and that really means that it, it was there, present in the larval, early forms before it became an adult. It persists into adulthood. This eye has three consecutive lenses, two together, and then a space, and then another lens, and then the photoreceptors. And this is the curious part. Those two lenses together ha- are called a doublet system, and they decrease spherical aberration. What that means is that they help bring an image to a single point focus. Because sometimes lenses can, uh, can mar an image. For instance, if you, take a, um, if you take a marble and try to look through a clear marble, you know that it distorts an image very much like the funhouse at a circus. Mm-hmm. If you have a doublet lens system like this, this lens system, it eliminates all those distortions and brings it just down to a point focus. But still you need to concentrate it because it's a little eye, so it has a third lens to concentrate this now collimated, this point of light concentrated into these photoreceptors. Curiously enough, there are only six photoreceptors in the eye. Now, just for comparison, you have about 110 million photoreceptors in your eye. This one has six. Of what possible use could six photoreceptors be? Well, they're not even aligned symmetrically. They're asymmetrical. Well, in what pattern and why would this be important? They're in what's known as a center surround system. And that means that the center cell is larger and more important than the surrounding cells what advantage would this be to this animal we don't know exactly what light rays these photoreceptors see however when these animals mate they come together in a congregation they're 96 percent males and four percent females the females then uh, are chased by a lot of males and the male that finds the female first is going to be the one to pass on his genes. Mm-hmm. The females are blue with yellow spots and that's called a center surround system. So in essence, this copepod, this male copepod with the nocular eye and a retina that is a center surround system has an eye for the ladies.
0: <laughs> Your book, uh, Like any good scientific book, uh, sometimes says, well, we're not quite sure about this. Uh, There are are numerous mysteries um, in the book that I think that uh, you allude to. Which ones do you think are the most baffling and incomprehensible? The biggest
1: mystery that I would tell you in the book, and I describe this briefly, is that the single cells that have visual pigment, and one even has an eye, Uh, We can talk about that another time. One single-cell animal with an eye uh, has a visual pigment uh, that we aren't yet acquainted with, and that may be the key to this next question. The multicellular organisms have visual pigments uh, that I talked about earlier, the rhodopsins or the retinol and opsins, and those are all homologous. What that means is they're all in the same family. They've all come from one single opsin and diverged. The single-cell organisms that have opsins, that have visual pigments, they're not the same as those we find in the multicellular organisms. So there's a bit of a gap between the single-cell organisms and the multicellular organisms with eyes, and the gap is that we don't understand the visual pigment that jumped that gap. The work that's being done in San Diego by Dr. Craig Ventner is looking at this, and he's found that there are over 800 different kinds of these these proteins called opsins over 800 different kinds and hasn't yet found the one that crosses over it only takes one my bet is that he will find that particular opsin that steps across from single cell to multicellular so that's mystery uh, number 1 that i would love to solve but i think craig will get there first but there's some other interesting mysteries These interesting mysteries may have implications for human health, and that might be the most exciting mystery out there. You perhaps have heard of conchs, or conchus, depending on how you pronounce it, and that depends on which part of the world you come from. Conchs are marine snails. You've seen these shells. They're beautiful shells, they're big, they're heavy. When these animals are small, in juvenile state, Sharks like to eat them, and they're common on the reef, on any coral reef. A shark will come along and crunch a shell to eat the mussel. But as they grow bigger, they're too heavy, and sharks can't crack the shell. But that doesn't stop them from trying. So, what they will do is they will bite at them, and they may bite off their eye stalks. These animals have two eye stalks that stick out from under their shell, and they can't retract them. These eye stalks move their eye around they have camera style eyes. I spoke earlier of camera style eyes, they look a lot like our eyes. If the shark bites off this eye stalk and the animal loses its eye, it will regenerate its eye in about four months. Not just a little bit of an eye either, a completely normal eye that looks like, acts like, and functions, just like the eye that was bitten off. In other words, it regenerates a normal eye. Depending on the species, maybe as much as six months, but perhaps as as little as four months. Well, what does that mean for humans? Well, if we can analyze that particular stalk, once, it's, once that stalk has been bitten off, and you can analyze the nerve to tell what part of its DNA, what part of its structure, starts the growth process and how it does that growth process. Could we grow an eye? Well, maybe. I think that's a long ways away. But this may have implications for spinal cord regeneration because not only does this nerve grow completely normally, but it grows in the right place. So it knows where to send those fibers. That's the key to spinal cord regeneration, not only making them grow, but to make them grow in the right place. This hasn't been investigated in decades, but now that we have new tools to investigate the molecules that are, that are given off, expressed, we may be able to learn how to grow new spinal cords or even new eyes.
0: Well, as long as we're going to be talking about possible fixes, I want to ask about Presbyopia, when you pass 40, you start noticing that you can't focus very well. Other animals have different means of focusing their eyes. Is there any hope on the horizon that other species may teach us a lesson to how we can better uh, retain our vision as we get older?
1: Doug, I'm really sorry about this. I'm sorry what I'm going to have to tell you here. The answer is yes, but no, not for you. Not going to happen to us. We're not going to be able to use anything that they have Mm. to uh, to help us. But let me tell you how animals solve this. Rays, that is like the manta ray or the stingray, have an interesting eye that solves this on the spot. The eye is not circular. The ray's eye is shaped like a pear. The top of the eye, the part that would point upward, is the narrow part. The circular part sits on the bottom, if you will, and the ray then lies on the the bottom of the sand. This pear-shaped eye sits upward then. How does it focus? Well, it focuses often in the distance with the curved portion of the eye, but it can focus at near with this elevated portion of the eye, the knob of the pear, if you will, because it has an oval-shaped lens. Now the optics are too complex for me to go through on the radio without drawings and a chalkboard, but basically it can see close objects with this upper portion of the eye and distance objects with the lower portion of the eye because of the oval lens. The optics make it work. But we can't grow a new eye,
0: at doggone least not
1: yet, uh, <laughs> doggone it is right.
0: Well, I have a, just one final, or as we wrap up, uh, kind of a goofy question someone threw at me, and I had to laugh because I didn't think it was right, but I was, I'm, I'm punting this upstairs to you. Someone said to me, how is it humans are the only animals that squint? Other, other animals go out there in the bright sunlight. They're not squinting. How can we have to squint?
1: You asked me earlier about mysteries, and I think you've just stumbled <laughs> upon a good one. This would bring me to one other, one other point. We all know different things. And we all have different knowledge bases. You've just asked a question because of your different knowledge base that I hadn't considered. I think it's a lovely question. Uh, but the basic answer is, I'll save that for my next volume.
0: All right, that's right. We're looking for it in volume two. I have no doubt Dr. Shrobson, our listeners are going to want to learn more. They, of course, can get the book. But are there any other websites you might send them to in addition to that?
1: Uh, there is a website uh, called www.evolutionswitness.com. There's no apostrophe, just one word, evolutionswitness.com. It's my personal blog, and I'm adding material there that's not in the book for a variety of reasons, but much of it's very new material. Just as a teaser, the website contains information about a wasp, a a wasp found in China that has solar panels on its back. (laughs) That'll be for another time.
0: We've been speaking with UC Davis Professor of Ophthalmology, Ivan Schwab about his book, Evolution's Witness, How Eyes Evolve. Dr. Schwab, thank you very much for speaking with us, and I'm looking forward to uh, volume two.
1: Thank you very much for your time, and
0: thanks very much for the wonderful questions,
1: and even some I hadn't thought about.